Lord God, Heavenly Father, your Son came with the authority to trample out serpents, to destroy the work of Satan, to cast out demons, to heal illness, and to restore all of creation. And so after his death and resurrection, he stood before the apostles and said, all authority has been given to me. And we rejoice that he uses that authority to pronounce us forgiven, to give to us eternal life, to promise to never leave us or forsake us, but to be with us always as our God. So we rejoice that you are a God who we know to be a God of love and compassion, of mercy and forgiveness, of hope and eternal life. So as you read these words of John, may we learn to see you as you truly are, our God, our Lord and Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, if you have no idea what I said in the prayer, you need to go back to church because you missed the sermon because that's what he preached on. So there you go. And if you didn't go to church, then that's what you'll learn. Yay! See how it works? All right, um, so John 1.18. Let's read John 1.18. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time introducing because I'm going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it. So let's just do it. John 1.18. Someone read that, please. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. I think it's not long enough to get a drink of coffee. Thank you very much. All right, so so we start, last week we talked a little bit about this verse, um, and we talked about how in the first phrase, um, when it says, no one has ever seen God, when it says God, there you want to think God the Father. Okay? When you want to think God the Father. And if, and I can explain to you kind of how in the prologue we know that, but um, if you look at the end of the verse, it says, no one has ever seen God, and then it, at the end it says, the only God, so that's not the same God as before, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. So the him refers back to the first God that we know to be the Father. So the end of the verse tells about the beginning of the verse and it's a circle. So when it says, no one has ever seen God, what you're thinking of here is God the Father. Now, Tom, the Holy Spirit hasn't been mentioned yet. We'll get there. At this point, we're just talking Father and Son. It's okay. It's just the way John does stuff. So don't freak out. Okay? Spirit's coming. And once you get spirit, you've got a whole bunch of spirit. Spirit's there already. Exactly. We just don't know it yet. He hasn't talked about him yet, but he's there. Okay? He's just not there in the text. Okay? So at this point, we're thinking God the Father, and it says, no one has ever seen him. So, number one, how then do you know God? Through the Son. Through Jesus and Jesus is given three titles in this verse. He is, I forgot how the ESV says it. He is the only, that's, what, that's title number one. He is God, that's title number two. And he is, this is gonna be weird. Who is. Those are his three titles in this verse. 
And the reason this is important is because remember back to John 1, 1, how many different ways was, how many different things we have, let's just go back and we'll look at it quickly. In 1, 1, what does it say? There's three main clauses. In the beginning was the word, that's the first clause, and the word was with God, second clause, and the word was God. Three clauses all defining the word. Logos, who is Jesus. So at the beginning of the prologue, there are three phrases that describe Jesus. And at the end of the prologue, he's going to give three titles to Jesus. And it is the only one, God, the one who is. This is extremely important to understand who Jesus is. Okay, so go back to 18. And I know in your English Bible it doesn't look like I'm telling you the truth because it doesn't look that way. But it is in Greek, this is the way it runs. Okay? So when it says the only one, the word here is monogenes. Okay? Monogenes, which is mono, thank you. Missing an Monogenes, okay? Which means mono is only or one. And genes is you think of the word generation, okay? The one, it's, it's something about origins, like Genesis, the book of Genesis, the book of origins. So what this means is, the monogenes means he is the unique in the way that he is. He is unique in his being, okay? It also gets interpreted a lot of places as only begotten. Like in your creed today, when he said, that Jesus is begotten, right? That's in the creeds. That's another way to translate this word. But the, um, a very accurate translation is unique one or only one, okay? Um, the Latin translation of the, of the Bible actually uses the word unique, okay? Um, so, well, like it. So Jesus is first of all unique in his being. There is no one else like this. Okay? And this word for unique is usually used for a son. For somebody who is born of or will inherit from the father. So in Hebrews, Isaac is called the monogenes of Abraham. The only begotten of Abraham. But we know that Isaac is not the only son that Abraham had. But there is something unique about Isaac for Abraham that is different than Ishmael, right? So this word in the New Testament is, it really talks about not the part, the reality that he's born, but the reality there's something unique about him. So he is the only one. That's the first title. He is unique. He's the only one like this. Second title. He is... God, okay? And this goes back to John 1, 1, right? That Jesus is God. By the way, this is number two. Did I tell you that? We're on number two. So you know you know the Father through Jesus. That was number one. And now we're on number two. There are, this is who Jesus is. He is the only one. He is God. And he is the one who is. Now, when we say that Jesus is God, this is very important. You guys need to memorize this. A lot of people will tell you the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Never explicitly says that Jesus is God. 
Well, guess what? The Gospel of John not only says it, but it's actually the outline of the book. Okay? I've told you before that we're reading the prologue to John. Well, the prologue begins and ends with explicit statements that Jesus is God. In 1.1, and the word was God. 1.18, now Jesus is called explicitly God. Okay, so the beginning and end of the prologue both say Jesus is God. That's called a framing technique, right? So John writes in such a way the beginning and the end say the same thing. We talked about this last week. It's like a circle. That also adds emphasis to it. Now, what I want you to do is go to John 20, verse 28. John 20, so the end of the gospel, verse 28. And this is the very end of the narrative section of the gospel. This is the end of the actual narrative text of the gospel. We'll have an epilogue after this and a little closing section from the author. But the narrative of the gospel itself ends with 28 and 29. So Jesus shows up to the 12 and Thomas has this whole, you know, I've got to see you thing. And then Thomas answers and says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So now the, the way that, that this is phrased is that in 1.1 and 1.18, which is kind of the prologue, it's that Jesus is God. And then from 1.18 to 2028, which is kind of the story of the gospel, these all mention that Jesus is God. If you look at it from this point of view, from 1-1 to 2028, it all says that Jesus is God. This is the way the gospel is actually outlined. That the, the main point of this gospel is that Jesus is God. Okay? He's not a kind of God. He's not like God. He is God. God. Okay? Now, I know that's not overly surprising to you guys. You've heard that a thousand times. But that's, that's really the entire point of the Gospel of John. This is so explicit in the Greek of John that there is, this is one of my favorite quotes about the New Testament. There is, an, there is a scholar who is an atheist and yet studies the Bible, which is really weird. And he said, that he must admit that the person who wrote this gospel believed that Jesus is God. You can't read the Gospel of John and not understand that the author of this writing wrote for one purpose, and that's to teach everybody that Jesus is God. Okay? So that's the explicit point of the text. Any questions so far? All right, now, the next title, The One Who Is. It's, in English, it's really hard to see because it says who is at the Father's side, but in Greek, the word is ha-on, okay? Which looks like this, ha-on, okay, those two Greek words. It is the phrase, which is the verb to be, and it means the one who is. Now, the reason this is important is because if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, go all the way back in your Bible to Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 
verse 14. Okay, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. This is the burning bush episode where Moses is, you know, there's bushes burning. And he says, go to Egypt. And so and he's like, well, okay, I'll go. But if I go, who should I say sent me? Right? What, what do I tell them? And so 314, someone read that for us. Okay, now, if you are reading that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, when God says, I am who I am, he says, ego, emi, that's the word I am, and then when it says the I am that's in all caps, it's this word right here. Ego, emi, ha, on. Okay? And he says, so then when he says it again, he says, tell them I am sent you, the I am there are, is this phrase, ha'od, which is the exact same phrase that's found in John 1.18 to describe Jesus. So what's happening here is John is actually saying, Jesus is the God who sent Moses to Egypt. That same God who sent Moses in their burning book to Egypt is the God who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai to give them Ten Commandments. And that's the same God who appeared to him in Exodus 33 and 34 that we talked about last week. So it is explicitly said here in this prologue that Jesus is the God. He is uniquely God. Which God? Yahweh of the Old Testament that talked to Moses. That's who this Jesus is. Okay? So when you're reading the Old Testament, you've been reading about Jesus this entire time. And the only way to know God the Father is to know Jesus. And what we're going to learn now as we read through the rest of the Gospel is the only way to understand the Old Testament is to understand that it's always been talking about this guy who was God in the flesh. And the only way to understand who this guy that is God in the flesh truly is, is to look at the cross. When we see him on a cross, then we can put the entire picture together and understand what the Old Testament is about, what this Jesus is about, right? Who your God truly is. Okay? Any questions on that? Roger. Can, can we say also that the only way to know Jesus is either by the Father or by the Spirit? <sighs> so this is the problem, is that the Gospel of John will tell us that the only way to know the Father is that the Son teaches you about the Father. It will also tell us that the only way to know the Son is that the Father draws you to the Son by the work of the Spirit. And the only way to know any of this is if the Spirit teaches you the truth. So remember, as we said last week, whenever you do Trinitarian theology, you're never, you're never making them fully mutually exclusive. You're simply describing the three persons of the Trinity in how they 
accomplish the task of doing what that person in the Trinity does, but it's never to the exclusivity of the other persons except for in the things of the incarnation of Jesus. Right? So, does the Father create the world? Does the Son create the world? Does the Spirit create the world? Right? Okay? Does the Father forgive sins? Does the Son forgive sins? Does the Spirit forgive sins? Yes. Say yes to that one. At least Tom's going to say yes to that one. Okay? Is the Father eternal? Is the Son eternal? Is the Spirit eternal? Is the Father with you? Is the Son with you? Is the Spirit with you? Was the Father incarnate? No. Was the Spirit incarnate? No. Just the Son. See, so this is the way we do Trinitarian theology. Is When we think about God in Trinity, the three persons, the, the, the really the one that we isolate is the person of the Son because that's the one that has the mutually exclusive, unique things to do in order to accomplish your salvation. Does that make sense? Kind of not, but kind of that's the way we have to talk about it. Okay, does that, any other questions on that or thoughts? Did I confuse you or make it better? So to answer Roger's question, like, you can know the father the son, but you can't necessarily flip it and say you know the son the father. Yeah, you can, you can flip it. But the only way you know the father is through the son, so this, the father will get you to know the son through the revelation of the son himself. And that's only done by the work of the Holy Spirit. My point is that the gospel says it all the ways. The gospel actually says it every single way. It says you can't know the Father unless the Son teaches you the Father. It also says you can't know the Son unless the Father's will is to drag you to the Son. And then it also says that if I didn't give you my spirit, you'd have no idea what's going on. Which we say you gave our spirit and we still have no idea what's going on. Right? So... It, that's the point. Is it is a Trinitarian movement. When it comes to you being saved, maybe that's the best way to say it. When it comes to you being saved, faith is the working of whom? Of God. Does the Father play a role in that? Yes. Does the Son play a role in that? Yes. Does the Spirit play a role in that? Yes. In our creedal formulation, we emphasize the work of the Spirit. Okay? But God as a Trinity does it. Okay? It, it is something that God does for you. There are scripture passages that talk about the Father being the one that drags you to the Son and gives to you the Spirit. Yeah? Okay? Think it's, it's this simple. I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian action, right? This is the way it goes. Okay, but when it talks when it talks about the actual accomplishment of your salvation, meaning the death and resurrection, that is specifically the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The Father does not do this. The Spirit does not do this. The Father is not risen from the dead. The son, the Spirit is not risen from the dead. Right, the Son is risen from the dead. That's where it gets to be unique. So if, is the spirit present when 
Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, the Father... The Father gave that knowledge to you. Is the Spirit present there at all? How does the Father give knowledge? Through the Holy Spirit. So yes. Remember, the Holy Spirit is always in the arrows. How does the Father... How does the Father give faith to Stick Roger? Right? How does the Father give faith to Stick Roger? That's the Spirit working. Now, you might not say that. You might just say the the Father gave you faith or the Son gave you faith or or baptism or whatever, whatever, right? But what's happening is that the Spirit is kind of the unseen worker who's actually doing this stuff of giving faith giving grace, teaching us to read the scriptures correctly, right? Pointing us to Christ. We don't always see it. This is why, and I always say this, is that in the creed, when you talk about the spirit, what's the next thing you talk about in the Apostles' Creed? The church. Because if you want to see the spirit's work, you look at the church. The spirit draws us to Jesus, gives us faith in Jesus, teaches us to understand the Trinity, teaches us to believe in the, in the scriptures of the word of God. This is all the working of the spirit. When you go home today and you're about to eat and you say, whoa, 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 we got to pray. Who's the one that's actually saying, whoa, whoa, whoa we got to pray? Ow. Ow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sometimes obvious, confused with uh, the spirit. Holy Spirit, right? No, 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 no. It never happens. No, it, but, but that's the point. Why did you set your alarm to get to come to church today? Ow. Ow. <laughs> it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Why did you stand and confess the creed at that time in the service? It's because it was in the bulletin. No, it's because the Holy Spirit is working faith in your heart. It's constantly working on you and driving you to do these things, which is why when you stand before the thr- the the judge and he says blessed are you because you have been a servant in my kingdom you're going to say who me he's going to say yes you this is what I did through you you're going to, I don't remember all that he's like yeah that's my spirit at work in you that's what you get when you belong to Jesus you get the Holy Spirit in you always right always does that make sense? Okay, any other questions? This is the easy part. <laughs> it gets complicated. Okay, so I just want to show you that, that John is a, is a masterful writer, and he actually uses these three titles for Jesus. He is, he is the unique one, the monogenes, which you'll hear again in John 3.16. Okay? God sends his only son. Um, he is God which we'll hear throughout the gospel, especially the beginning and the end. And he is actually now pointing us back to the revelation of Yahweh in Exodus with the word Ha'on. Now, look again at the text at John 1 and look at 17. And what you'll see is a direct reference to Moses, which is why this this last phrase, Ha'on, it, it does actually have a lot of in a literary way, credence to go back to see if this phrase is actually something about Moses, and it is. So we interpret this whole passage as kind of referring the reader back to Exodus. Okay? If you want to know about Moses, read the book of Exodus. That's really the Moses book. Right? Yeah? 
Okay. All right. Number two is actually the question that I spend my entire life answering. So we could just spend the rest of our lives there, but we won't. So number three, how close are their father and Jesus? They're one, but how close are they in this text? He's at his father's side. Now, the actual Greek in this is he is in the father's bosom. He is in the bosom of the father. Okay. And if you want a physical description of that, go to John 13, verse 20. I think it's 23. John 13, verse 23. It's the only other use of this word in John. And the ESV just makes it really less understandable. I don't know why they did that. It's not my fault. John 13, 23. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table close to Jesus. Okay, now there's a little two after Jesus, which is basically ESV people saying, I don't know why we translated it this way because the Greek actually says, which is what it says. The little footnote number two says, the Greek says, in the bosom of Jesus, which would have been nice if they would have translated that way here and in John 118, because then you can see what John is actually trying to do. Okay? So, this means, if you think of reclining in the bosom of Jesus, that means that John was actually leaning against Jesus as they eat. Okay? Which is something that was reserved in table fellowship for somebody that you are really close to. You don't let a stranger whom you don't like lean against your bosom as you eat. Right? Exactly. That's reserved for people that you love, that are family, that are that close to you, that they are welcome into your bosom. Right? And we think about one of the, one of the old spirituals about going to heaven is we're going to be in the bosom of Abraham, which is from the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Right? that that's where we dwell in heaven is this bosom. So this is a very, very close relationship. And what this is saying now is that we're going back again. We're, again, we're going back to 1-1 one, one when this Jesus who is God is with God. Now, this is important because just like last week, I want you to think through some things. I want you all to think about this. If Jesus is God and the Father is God, we still don't know if they like each other. That may be gods who are opposed to each other. In Greek mythology, are all the gods on the same page? Nope. Oh no, they hate each other, right? They got it, they're enemies. They're fighting each other, they're trying to kill each other, take each other's women, all kinds of stuff, right? That's Greek mythology. The cool thing about New Testament Christianity is that the Trinity are not opposed to each other. They actually love each other. The Father loves the son. Think about the baptism of Jesus. This is my son whom I love. Or in one translation, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? So, so one of the things we want to look at is in 1811 and 118, it's that the father and the son 
are together. Now, this is important because the rest of the gospel is going to expect you to believe that when Jesus is speaking, it's the voice of the Father. You can trust Jesus to be speaking for the Father because they are totally on the same page. Jesus will say later, whatever I'm speaking, it's only because the Father told me to say it. I don't speak anything on my own behalf. I don't make anything up as I go along. Everything I'm saying, I'm saying because the Father has told me to say it. And everything I'm doing, I'm doing because I've seen the Father doing it already. That's what Jesus will say when people ask him to give an account for his teaching and preaching. Okay? Does that make sense? Questions so far? Susan. What about the paper? What you, did you just say that when Jesus says, he says because the Father tells him to say mm-hmm. whatever he does, he does because of the Father? He saw the Father doing it. What about the demons? What about the demons? The, <coughs> the demons? Yeah, he saw the Father throwing out demons. What's that? Yeah, there's a war in heaven. Yeah, that's another writing of John, by the way. In the garden, but that was probably Jesus. When did he see the Father overthrowing the demons? Okay, put on your metaphysical hats for a second. What happens to evil when it's in the presence of God? It's dispelled. It's kicked out. That God is so holy that evil cannot exist in his presence. So this overthrowing of demon, overthrowing of sickness, overthrowing of blindness, overthrowing of weakness, overthrowing of death, this is all who the Father is in his being. And Jesus has seen this from eternity because he's also with God. And he's going to now come enact this on earth. This this is really fun. And And I... I hope you don't have any plans today. <laughs> I'm going to have to call up Sarah and tell them that late service, we're just going to have everyone come down and we're going to keep going. Because there's just so much in this text, we could go on forever. But one of the things, when, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, right, which isn't really a big theme in the Gospel of John, but it is in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, same thing, when he's talking about that, what does he mean? He actually means that this is what it looks like when God reigns. When God reigns, this is what it looks like. Demons lose, God wins. When God reigns, blind people can see. When God reigns, fevers leave so that that person can serve. When God reigns, death loses, life wins. When God reigns, sins are forgiven. When God reigns, these three things remain. Faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love.
right? That's what it looks like when God reigns. And Jesus says, I'm coming back to bring the eternal reign of God with me. You want to live where God reigns? Or do you want to live where Satan reigns? Up to you. Choose this day. Where do you want to live? I'm not kidding. Where do you guys want to live? I want to live where God reigns. Like, you know, love, peace, hope, joy, life. I don't want to live where Satan reigns. Where there's death and destruction and hate and malice. Evil. Right? Satan That's, doesn't reign, though. Yeah, he does. He's the prince of this world. Of this world. But when, when our life is passed here, he is already... Defeated. He doesn't reign there either. Because where is it that God is not God? As the psalmist says, I go up to the heights of heaven and you're there. I'll go down to the depths of Sheol and you are there. If I go over there, you are. If I go over there, you're there. If I come right here, you're here. I, I, I can't escape your presence because you are God. So if God reigns, where does he reign? Everywhere. But if you want to live under Satan's domain, he has assigned a place where that happens. And that place is the place where God will withdraw his presence. Right? He will, because he's God, he can do these things, simply remove his presence. Isn't Satan's power taken from, taken from him in that place? Well, it's, it's a reigning... <laughs> And that's the whole point. If you want to call that reigning, go ahead. But it's actually a, a, a defeat. He's actually defeated. Right? Satan is entirely defeated. That's what the cross does. It says Satan has entirely lost. And what he thinks he's gained is actually defeat. And he's deceived people to believe that that's actually winning when it's really losing. Right? I mean, Satan is the great deceiver. Nothing he says is true. So when he says, look at me, I'm reigning. Eh, no, you're losing. He says, you can reign with me. You can be in my kingdom. And you go, you don't have a kingdom. What are you promising? Right? It's all a lie. The only one who actually reigns is God. And what Jesus is saying in his ministry is that all this time of kingdom of God, if you're listening to the gospel reading today, what he's saying is, this is what it looks like when God is running the show and Satan is kicked out, which is the promise of eternity for you. No more sadness, no more sickness, no more dying, no more pain, no more death, for the former things have passed away. Okay? That's what Jesus came to bring. Yes? I didn't bring it up. <laughs> Why does Jesus tell the the demons and say not to you are the son of God that don't kill him? Yeah, he says, don't say that. Yeah, don't say that. So why does he say that? Does he tell them not to not to acknowledge? Go to John chapter two. Because John is always the place you look for answers. Go to John chapter 2, verse 4. 
John chapter 2, verse 4. Susan, read that for us. That's the answer. Because the demons are like, okay, let's 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 just have it out. Right? You're the Holy One of God. We're against you. Let's do it. Let's just go. And Jesus says, shut up. You're not running the show. You're not telling me what to do. It's not time for that yet. The devil is always trying to get Jesus to prove who he is apart from the cross. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, it shouldn't be a big deal for you to just turn these stones into bread. That's no big deal for God, right? You created the whole world. How hard is this? And Jesus says, uh, no. Man does not live on bread alone, but by the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God's word did not say, this is how I show my divinity. This is not how I show who I am. I don't show up by cheap parlor tricks that serve myself. Satan says, well, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow down to me. And Jesus says, kingdom? Are you kidding me? I'll worship the Lord my God and serve him only. How does Jesus worship God? By doing his will. And so you find that same Jesus in the garden saying, not my will, but thine be done. And what does he do? He gets him and he goes to a cross. Right? So the temptation of, of the demons in the Synoptic Gospels is always to have Jesus do something to be the Son of God, but not go to the cross. And Jesus always says, no, I came to get to a cross. I got to get there. Because that's where I will show you that I am the Holy One of God. And that will be a defeat that the demons cannot even comprehend. It's such a pervasive defeat. Because death itself is conquered. Not just the demon. The entire concept of death defeated. Sin defeated. Right? Satan's accusation against you defeated on the cross. So that's how you want to read it. You want to read all these times that Jesus seems to be saying the wrong, the wrong thing. People are like, I get it, you're the Messiah. And he goes, shh, don't tell anyone. I thought we were supposed to tell everyone. He's like, not yet. This happens over and over. Peter is, is so, so Jesus is healing a bunch of people and preaching and everyone's like, I love this Jesus guy. And, and like everyone would come join his church. And Jesus leaves in the middle of the night and goes off and pray. And Peter comes against him and goes like, seriously, you've got like the largest new member class in the history of Christianity. You've got to come teach them. And Jesus says, it's time for us to leave. I got to get out of here. And Peter's like, what? And he said, I didn't, I didn't come for popularity. I didn't come for this. I came to spread the kingdom of God to all people. But I've got work to do before I get to my hour which is my death. Right? See, Jesus is, it, it'll say in the Gospel of John too, that, that he knew they were coming to try to make him king, so he had to leave. That he knew the crowds were coming to elect him, so he had to get out of there. Why? Because he's got to get to the cross. He's got to get to the cross. He can't be tempted by anything else. 
Okay? Does that make sense? We haven't gotten to the main point yet, and we've only got 10 minutes left. <laughs> All right, number four. How does the end of the prologue explain the entire Old Testament and John's Gospel? So at the end of the prologue, the end of verse 18, he, meaning Jesus, has made him, meaning God, known. The word known there is the, the Greek word for exegetical or exegesis, which is what exegetical theology is, having GHDN, yay, exegesis. But anyway, that word means to explain something, to explain something that either hasn't been known before or is hard to understand, to explain it. So this verse says that Jesus makes God know. So if you want to know God, you have to get to know Jesus. That's what John is saying. Now, what this does is that actually because the verse starts the idea that no one's ever seen God, every single person who's ever read the Old Testament says, what? Yeah, yeah. that's not true. Lots of people saw God. As a matter of fact, it's all over the Old Testament. People are always seeing God. And John is saying, actually, they all saw Jesus. Okay? Now, I know I've told you that a thousand times before, so it's not shocking to you. But I want to show you how that works. If you look at the Old Testament, the main dude in the Old Testament, that's a technical term, the main guy in the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, the main guy that teaches you about God, who is that? Moses. He wrote the first five books. He, he hung out with God on the, on the Mount Sinai. He gave us the Torah. He gave us the law. He met with God face to face in the tent of meeting. His, light, his face shone with light so much so that we had to put a veil over it. That's how close this Moses guy is with God. As a matter of fact, Moses and God had their own private conversation one day where God said to Moses, I like you. I don't like them. Matter of fact, I'm going to get rid of all of them and just you and me. And Moses is like, if we could, let's rethink this whole idea. Right? That's actually what happens. And because of Moses' advice to God, God says, we'll go with your plan. I will be their God and they will be our people. And Moses is like, cool. Can I go tell them that? And you're like, yeah, I guess. And, and that's actually, that's who Moses is. So if you want to explain God, you've got to get to Moses. So you're saying that he was willing to break his covenant with Abraham? No, I'm saying that... Well, he was going to destroy, destroy the Jewish nation? Yeah, sorry with Moses. He was saying, I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham through you instead of through them because I'm sick of them. And he also knew what all had passed and was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, so he's just teaching us that he's going to keep his covenant through a mediator who will represent God's people to God in the face of the wrath of God. This mediator is going to stand up and say, no, forgive them. I know they don't deserve your love. Forgive them. And the thing is, the mediator actually isn't Moses. Right? The mediator will be the son of God himself. So that's how this all is, is continuing. That's what John is saying, is that we go back and reread all this. So the point is, if you, want to, if you want to get a big guy in the Old Testament, the main guy, his name is Moses. Okay? Now, where did Moses see God? 
the book of Exodus. And I've just showed you, I showed you last week, and I showed you this week, how the prologue of John actually shows us that all this talk of Moses in Exodus 33, Exodus 34, Exodus 24, even Exodus 3, where the naming of God is given to Moses, is actually a revelation of Jesus. So, in John 1, you have Moses seeing God, who's actually Jesus. So in John 1, Moses, you have the episodes of Moses seeing God as directly tied to Jesus. Okay? Name another big guy in the Old Testament. Who's another really important guy after? Yeah, Elijah will get there. Isaiah will get there. Before Moses. Abraham. Yeah, we'll get to Abraham too. Yeah, before Moses. What? Before Moses, you actually get Jacob. Okay, Jacob is Israel, right? So Israel seeing God, how does that happen? Well, does Jacob actually ever see God? He wrestles with him. He has a vision of a staircase, the God at the top. He actually sees me. He says, oh, I just saw God. I'm probably going to die, but he doesn't. So he calls it the, the place where he met him, Peniel, which means the face of God. He says, because I just saw the face of God. Remember that? You guys, should we do, Moses, should we do Genesis again? Do we not go slow enough through that? <laughs> okay, so go to John 1, 51. We'll get there next year? Yeah, we'll get there in a couple years. Actually, we'll start at 49. John 1, 49 to 51. Actually, we should back up 47. I will read it out loud. John 1, 47 and 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite, Jacob, in whom there is no deceit, unlike Jacob, who is the great deceiver. deceiver right? Ah, now here is true Israel. Read it that way. Right? The fulfillment of all Jacob was supposed to be. Interesting. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? He said, I saw you. Don't worry about that. But then Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So what's happening is John here is making an allusion at the end of John 1, 51, to Jacob, okay? He's making an allusion to Jacob's vision of the ladder, and he's saying the fulfillment of that vision is actually Jesus. Jesus himself says it here, okay? So now we've got Moses, God, or Moses saw Jesus as God, and now we have Jacob has seen God, and seeing Jesus, or Jesus and seeing God. Now, we got to back up and say, yeah, Jacob was the guy who had the 12 tribes of Israel as his sons, but who was the first guy who was actually the father of Israel? Abraham. Abraham. Okay, so go to John 8. The very end of John 8. Okay, the very end of John 8. And there's a long argument here. We won't have to read all that. Let's read 56 through 59. 
father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself one out of them. Okay, so now we have all this language of seeing, right? Vision, seeing, and Abraham. So John 8, it's really, you know, 58 usually what people say, is Abraham. So now John is telling us that Abraham actually saw Jesus when he saw God. And now we're learning that when Jesus says, I am, how do people react to it? They're going to pick up stones to kill him because they believe that he is blasphemy. Now, here's the thing. The words I am in 858 are not... Oh, boy. It's not these words. He doesn't say because ha'on. That's the name of Yahweh in Exodus 3. What does he say instead? Here it is a go of me. That's not God's name. Those are just words that mean I am. So why do they take this as blasphemy? Because Isaiah says that God says, I am who I am. And instead of using ha'on, he uses ego ami. So what we have now is Jesus claiming to be the Yahweh that Isaiah was talking about. Wait a minute. You're claiming to be the one that Isaiah talked about? You know what's worse? He claims to be the one that Isaiah saw. When did Isaiah see God? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Right? And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Remember Isaiah 6? That's where the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. The seraphim are there. And it says, who shall go for us? Who shall I send? That's Isaiah 6. The great vision of Yahweh in his temple by the great prophet of Israel, Isaiah. Go to John chapter 12, verse 41. So you're claiming to be the God that Isaiah saw? <laughs> yes, I am. So John 12, verse 41, and we're going to have the vision of Isaiah. Okay, John 12, verse 41. So he's going to quote, oddly enough, what chapter is he going to quote here? Isaiah chapter 6. So the quotation is in verses 38 and 39 or from, and 40 are from Isaiah 6. And then in 41, John tells us, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And the antecedent to his is Jesus. Okay, so now we have in John's gospel that God, that Jesus as God appeared to Moses, Jacob, Abraham, and Isaiah. And in the end of the gospel, Thomas is going to look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. Remember, Lord God is the combination in the Old Testament that means Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is God. 
So when Thomas says, my Lord and my God to Jesus, he is saying, you are Yahweh. Clear confession that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. That's who this is. Okay? Does that make sense? So what this means is, when you're reading the New Testament, it talks about God, you want to stop thinking God the Father and start thinking Jesus. When you read the Old Testament and it says God did this, you want to stop thinking God the Father and start thinking Jesus. Does it mean the Father doesn't exist? No, the Father's always there. Who sent the Son? The Father. Does it mean the Holy Spirit doesn't exist? No. The Holy Spirit's the one that's teaching you to read it as though it's about Jesus, right? Now, is there, are there places in the Old Testament where it's not talking about Jesus, but talking about the Father? Yes. Just like there are in the New Testament. But because we so much default to the idea that whenever it says God, it means God the Father, it's, it's a good exercise for us to change our minds and, and do it the opposite. Start thinking, I'm reading about Jesus in the Old Testament. When God acts, when God shows up, when God speaks, you should assume that is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Okay? Which means all the stuff in the Old Testament about God loving his people, that's Jesus. And that will be fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? Any questions? Number one rule of teaching, we still start packing up. It's time to be done. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, think about that. If you have any questions the next two weeks, they'll answer all of them about the eternity. <laughs> think of really hard questions, especially about the Trinity. Yes, you're allowed to ask hard questions. Um, they can certainly handle them. Actually, seriously, they can no problems. I'll, they can handle any questions throughout them. Um, okay, so let's pray and then we'll go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made yourself known to us. And so we rejoice to know you as a God of love and mercy and forgiveness, the God who rejoices in loving your people and also delights in our love for you. So teach us each day to live our lives rejoicing in your love and forgiveness and peace and also trusting you for all things. Guide us. We might so serve you that those around us ask about the hope that we have we might share with them this good news about our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.